Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Sven Eric Rose, who teaches at UC Davis. Here to talk about his new book, Jewish Philosophical Politics in Germany, 1789 to 1848, published in 2014 by Brandeis University Press. Sven Eric, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Hi, man. Thank you for having me on the show. It's great to have you. So maybe let's start, if you would, um, tell us broadly and briefly uh, about 1789 and 1848. Uh, Those are two revolutionary years in Europe. Uh, What happened between those two turning points uh, for the Jews of Europe? Did it have any special meaning for the Jews of Germany? Right. So a a lot happened for the Jews of Europe, for Western Europe uh, especially. Uh, So especially in France with the French Revolution, which you alluded to, which began in 1789. That really was uh, the moment when Jews entered uh, the state. Not exactly in 1789. It took until 1791 and a lot of uh, uh, debate in the in the French Parliament uh, and the National Assembly. Um, but eventually, uh, the Jews did get uh, citizenship in France, and so that was really kind of um, raised the anticipation of uh, some movement on Jewish civil rights in Germany. Now, in contradistinction to what happened in France, this was a very long and drawn out and piecemeal uh, negotiation in Germany. Uh, so there was a kind of hope and a sort of realistic, well, it's the expectation seemed more realistic that uh, Jews could achieve uh, a civil rights, uh, what was commonly called emancipation um, in Germany, although that didn't really uh, play out. It took, a, you know, almost a century of kind of discourse and expectation and work on that uh, before Jews got uh, the same rights as other citizens in Germany, not until 1871 in the aftermath of the Franco-Prussian War. But it did certainly raise the expectations and the kind of uh, hopes uh, and the kind of uh, energy around the the issue of of Jewish emancipation in German countries. In 1848 also held uh, the promise um, not realized, though. Is that right? That's correct. So 1848, that was the other part of your question, the, the end of my period. Uh, that was the year of a failed revolution in Germany. So a liberal revolution. Uh, German liberals were hoping to consolidate a, a German uh, country with a, a, uh, a parliament. Um, and they tried to do that. And they set up a, a pre-parliament and, uh, and, a, and then a finally an assembly in Frankfurt. And in the end, they didn't have any power, and uh, they and the and the project uh, fell in 1849, and basically re- reverted to what had been there before. But a lot of Jews were involved in this effort, and it was the kind of first time that uh, Jews were uh, prominently, uh, you know, played a real prominent role in in a major uh, political effort uh, in in Germany. And um, so that was uh, also, yeah, sort of a failed revolution, but it consolidated, say, the uh, Jewish identification with German liberalism uh, in a way that certainly a lot of Jews had had identified with the liberal uh, kind of project in Germany uh, before that. 
but there had been some some holdouts. A lot of the Orthodox community was not so uh, sold on on German liberalism. In the wake of 1848 and onward, uh, you really had um, German Jews thought of themselves as precisely that, as German Jews, um, and and looking for uh, citizenship and tending to to denationalize uh, Jewish identity uh, into a, a more religious identity where they would be German citizens of the Jewish faith or the Mosaic faith or, or what have you. So it was a real turning point, even though uh, it didn't result in immediate uh, political gains. May even have set the, the, the process back, according to some historians. But um, in terms of identity, uh, it was certainly a, a major turning point. What is philosophical politics? Um, and, and why is it something that Jews were particularly interested in during these 60 years? Right. So, Philosophical politics is a term that I I came up with myself um, to talk about uh, a certain uh, kind of tendency in in uh, Jewish German thought in this in this period, and I consider it a variation of a broader theme in German philosophical culture uh, in general. So I don't think what it, what the Jewish intellectuals are are doing uh, in this period is completely different than what's going on in the broader culture. But I think it's, uh, it's perhaps, uh, you know, the, there is a, a difference. And what's going on in the, in the broader culture is precisely Germans and German intellectuals see what's going on on the other side of the Rhine in, in France. And they say, wow, you know, political modernity has all this uh, possible, all these possibilities, both, uh, both great potential that we can welcome and uh, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, dangers like the terror in, in the French Revolution um, or depending on your politics, Napoleon. Um, so but at any rate, the, the, the sense that that history was momentous and could really change, that uh, that politics uh, could really evolve and, and quite rapidly and transform the world as as it was known at the time. And on the other hand, in Germany, what you have is kind of political stagnation. It's sort of a, a Compared to France, it's sort of uh, politically uh, politically a backwater. Um, but what you do have is a revolution in thinking. Uh, this is the period between Kant uh, and, uh, say, Hegel and the the young Hegelians in the in the 1830s and 40s, including people like Karl Marx and Moses Hess. Um, that this is a real flowering of 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 uh, of thought of, of philosophical um, thinking in Germany. So there's a kind of intellectual revolution that's going on in German countries, uh, but doesn't really have any, uh, not much going on politically. And so there's a kind of compensatory role that philosophy can play uh, in, in German culture that um, intellectuals kind of think through philosophical models um, to kind of compensate for the lack of real political uh, opportunities. And like I said, I think that that's going on and kind of, Political theorizing through uh, philosophical paradigms is something that is going on broadly, but uh, Jews are doubly marginalized. Um, they they have to sort of think of themselves uh, or think ways that they might be, be able to belong to the wider polity in the first place, uh, let alone change that polity in, in, a, in a way that would be more progressive and, and on its way to a more modern uh, political state, uh, which was a broader problem. But whether or not Jews could even be part of that political project. Uh, was uh, was in question, and uh, a number of the Jewish intellectuals that I look at in this book are, are drawing on on powerful philosophical models 
to do precisely that, to try to think of uh, a, a polity in which Jews could uh, participate. Yeah, so these um, Jewish intellectuals that you look at are thinking about Judaism with the tools, you say, of, of the German philosophical tradition. Can you tell us just sort of briefly what are some of the most important elements of German philosophy at the time? Sure. So um, the main paradigms that, uh, that I look at are Kant, and we have uh, in, the, in one chapter that I deal with is a, is a, a Jewish Kantian named Lazarus Ben David, uh, and he's drawing on Kant's uh, moral philosophy, uh, which is a, a philosophy that stresses uh, human freedom and autonomy. Uh, so he's uh, looking at the sort of free, autonomous, uh, moral subject. That is that the, the, for Kant, the moral uh, subject is free in the sense that we should not be beholden to any um, moral standard that we don't create for ourselves. We're sort of autonomously, in moral terms, we're self-legislating. Uh, and that's what he means by autonomy. And so uh, Bandavi kind of thinks of citizenship uh, in in these terms. He thinks that if you have a rational, autonomous uh, subject, uh, then that kind of subject um, would be uh, fit for citizenship uh, in a modern uh, German state, which, of course, doesn't really exist anywhere. Right. That's not on the table. Nobody's saying if, if you Jews um, reform yourselves and become uh, rational, according to uh, the Kantian model, then we will give you citizenship rights. That's not really a realistic uh, negotiation, but it's a, a kind of um, a vision uh, and a hope. And perhaps, you know, with the kind of tumultuous uh, uh, political climate, uh, something that seemed somewhat plausible that that some kind of real change could happen. But that's that's one model is 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 Kant and and the kind of autonomous subjectivity and that taken as uh, a kind of model for political. Uh, citizenship in 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 one uh, era. And then the next uh, powerful model that I look at is uh, Hegel, the great idealist uh, philosopher of the 19th century in Germany. He died in 1831, and um, he is uh, important for a group of uh, young uh, Jewish intellectuals that were, for the most part, uh, first generation university students at the University of Berlin. And uh, this group of, uh, of Hegelian uh, sort of inspired intellectuals, they sort of shuttled between Hegel's lecture hall and their own uh, meetings uh, of an association that they, that they began in, in, in Berlin in 1819, and it existed uh, through the mid-1820s. And it was called the Association for the Culture of uh, the Culture and Study of the Jews or the science of the Jews. Uh, Wissenschaft is the, is the German term. Um, and this group has a kind of um, uh, an important place in Jewish studies as a, as a discipline, and that is that they, they invented the term uh, Wissenschaft des Judentums. Uh, that's either, like I said, science uh, of Judaism or the academic study of Judaism. And so they are kind of looked at as uh, one origin for a, a secular approach, an academic approach to uh, to Jewish studies. Um, they were very sort of vehemently, self-consciously separating themselves from the rabbinic tradition of, of Jewish learning and trying to uh, take on uh, the latest uh, academic uh, standards and methodologies to study uh, Jewish uh, cultural history. So they are really inspired by Hegel. 
uh, and his whole kind of conception uh, of of how uh, rationality unfolds in in history. And we can talk more about that. But um, there was a real political edge uh, to it. So what I look at in my book, like I said, there's a a kind of um, this this group and this institution has been enshrined in the history of Jewish studies as as one kind of origin for for what we still do in in the discipline of Jewish studies. But my uh, focus on the book is actually not so much on the production of actual uh, Jewish scholarship, which is very important in its own right, but rather on the uh, political investments that they that they had uh, in their institution, which is a fairly humble uh, kind of institution, actually. Uh, but they, with drawing on Hegelian theory, invested it with a lot of uh, political hopes that they would become the mediators between uh, the Jewish community and uh, and the state that they would uh, kind of incorporate uh, the Jews as uh, as participants in a modern, forward-looking, progressive uh, state. They didn't have any real leg to stand on to do this. It's, they were kind of going on Hegelian, Hegelian theory and chutzpah um, and had a very uh, little support from the Jewish community uh, in whose uh, interest they claimed to uh, to operate, and they had very little access to any uh, centers of power within uh, the Prussian state, but what they had was Hegelian theory and a Hegelian theory of the state, um, and so they kind of existed in this very interesting gray zone between the reality of the Prussian state, um, and which was quite reactionary and, and eventually excluded Jews uh, from state service, um, although that was a bit ambiguous uh, during the existence of, of this association. And uh, they existed in sort of the gray zone between the real state and Hegel state. And for them, uh, Hegelian, uh, the Hegelian state, which was much more attractive than the real, uh, the real existing Prussian state, uh, seemed more real to them uh, in a very interesting way. I think that they thought that they were kind of on the right side of history, that their ideas would prevail, that their vision for a progressive uh, state uh, based on the kind of model that Hegel had theorized. Uh, was in some sense uh, the future and uh, the uh, the reactionary tendencies in the Prussian uh, state were uh, were not uh, not going to exist much longer. That the writing was on the wall. That they understood what was happening. They understood the movement of history um, and where they were going. Unfortunately, uh, they were they were wrong about that. Mm-hmm. But Hegel Hegel is the uh, is the major uh, thinker for them. Um, and then I'll just more briefly, uh, I'll, I have a, a chapter on, on the young Marx, uh, where he's sort of his own <laughs> thinker. He also is engaging with Hegel. That's, uh, we can talk about that chapter. It doesn't fit the schema, uh, in, in quite the same way as, as the other chapters, which are all Jewish thinkers trying to sort of use a philosophical, uh, set of tools, uh, to imagine, uh, a, 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 a polity in which Jews could participate. Um, and so I'll hop over the, the Marx for a, a moment. I'm happy to come back. To you. Let, 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 sure. sure. Um, maybe we'll come back to Marx. But let me ask you um, about the, the, the group. Um, they do. They put these. Um, they put German philosophy towards sort of a Jewish end. They're trying to reimagine Jewish history, community, and political agency. How exactly are they are they trying to do that? How are they using Kantianism and German ide- German idealism? 
towards that end. And what kind of response did they get? Um, these were pretty marginal folks at the time, right? That's correct. Yeah, the, these are all thinkers that don't have any real position within the Jewish community. Um, and uh, so they are, and I think that's important, that they are kind of using uh, using German philosophy um, from a position of, of relative weakness, right? That it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a, a fantasy, I think, in a kind of comp- compensatory role that, that, uh, that, uh, German philosophy is playing, uh, for them. Um, I think when you have real pragmatic sort of, uh, possibilities to maneuver, uh, you may not have to resort to, um, sort of theoretical, um, elaborate sort of th- theoretical, uh, arguments and, and, and visions if, if you want. Um, so, uh, but there, there. On on the one hand, uh, I think that there was a sort of a sense that uh, that this this thought by both by Kant and by by Hegel, which were really new. I think it's an important thing to remember when these these particular uh, intellectuals, Lazarus Ben David, and the group uh, of the Association of the Study of uh, Jewish Culture, uh, was when they were working. With these ideas, these were very new, innovative ideas. They've become sort of uh, part of intellectual history and and you know part of curriculum. So we don't really think of them as as so radically new, but they were right there at the beginning. Uh, and and I think that they really sort of thought that that these ideas were unlocking uh, a kind of potential for uh, the way that modernity was going to unfold. So there was a, a definite kind of um, overestimation of the power of of thought itself. I think that they sort of thought that these these powerful ideas uh, were going to, uh, you know, sweep away a lot of the antiquated uh, structures of absolutism and the kind of backward quality of the German political situation. So a, a kind of harnessing uh, their political project to uh, this engine of of, of radically new uh, philosophical thought. Uh, which you know, in the end, uh, is not a very good motor to to harness your <laughs> politics too. But uh, but it's an interesting uh, thing that happened, and 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 something that I was really quite fascinated with. Just sort of briefly, what until now has been sort of the the accepted view of how Jews interacted with German philosophy? It seems like you're trying to turn it on its head, and you know, your explanation better explains uh, why Ben David uh, should be better known. Right. Well. Um, there's a couple things that I do sort of upend, uh, and one uh, sort of standard narrative about the uh, Jewish reception of uh, of Kant and of Hegel uh, and Spinoza is the other important figure in my book um, that is is a bit different because he wasn't a contemporary, of course, but his reception was was important. But Kant and Hegel, in particular. It's uh, fairly standard to think that uh, that Kant was kind of the the philosopher that German Jews adopted almost as 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 sort of the, the good uh, German philosopher with whom they could work. Um, you find a long history of, of Jewish Kantians kind of seeing analogies or harmonies between Jewish ethics and 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 Kantian ethics, um, or at least purporting to to see these harmonies um, and. Hermann Cohen, uh, who uh, died in the during the First World War as an as not not as a soldier as an, as an older uh, professor, uh, but he was sort of at the end of this uh, history of of Jewish Kantians, and he almost saw Judaism and Kantianism sort of intellectually as as very very similar, um, and 
So that's kind of been one standard take. And then the other one is that Jewish studies has tended to be very reticent towards Hegel. Um, and this for some, some good reason. Uh, Hegel, uh, wrote some things in his, in his youth, uh, some essays that trafficked in quite negative, uh, anti-Jewish stereotypes of Jews as being misanthropic and, and, um, egoistic. Uh, these were not published during his lifetime, so the members of the, of the association that I talk about weren't familiar with them. But in his general um, philosophy, he also has a kind of secularized uh, Christian supersessionism. So that is to say that um, you know he secularizes this narrative of Christianity having come and and made Judaism obsolete. But in intellectual terms, in secular terms, it's doing much of the same thing. There's not a lot of reason why Judaism uh, within a within a a Hegelian narrative of the unfolding of history, uh, why Judaism should still be around and, and continue to exist. Um, so there are very good reasons for uh, skepticism vis-a-vis uh, -vis Hegel. But I try to put some pressure on that in, in some ways by showing that, um, that Kant, as Ben David uh, takes him up, uh, it's, I, I don't want to be here, I heard his saying that, you know, uh, the opposite, that Kant is bad for the Jews and Hegel is good for the Jews. I, I would say that, you know, to the question, is Kant good or bad for the Jews? I would say yes. And, and I would say the same thing uh, about Hegel. But I do show that that the first person really to to draw on Kant, Ben David, to, to kind of think through uh, a Jewish politics, if you want, um, ends in a very um, ambivalent uh, place and, and one that shows the dangers of, of Kantian uh, universalism for for Jews. He has a a gruesome uh, metaphor that I that I study at some length in my chapter of uh, decapitation. He says that traditional Judaism is uh, a hydra, all of whose heads have to be severed at once, instantaneously, uh, in order to kind of uh, fix uh, Judaism and make it uh, you know uh, uh, adequate to the uh, to the modern age and to modern citizenship. Um, and this really comes from a Kantian uh, paradigm of universalism that ethics is uh, for Kant. We are free and self-legislating, but what constitutes uh, the ethical is its ability to be universalized so that if we act uh, in a way that we would want everyone to act, um, then that is uh, sort of the non of, of a moral uh, maxim, right? That's, that's sort of what makes something uh, moral uh, in, in Kant. Well, that makes it very difficult to uh, to negotiate with, uh, say, any kind of uh, alternate or al al alterity, any any kind of uh, ethical alterity. So, what does traditional Jewish ethics look like that from a Kantian perspective? Well, only as something that has to be uh, eradicated, arguably. So, it's a real dangerous kind of um, proposition that there's no there's no real content uh, to to uh, Kantian morality, more a, a simply a, a structure of universalization that makes it moral. And then in, um, in, so that's a danger, I think. So I'm sort of upending that, that sense that Kant is sort of good for the Jews and saying, well, it's in some ways, yes, but, but also very complicated. And then with Hegel, Hegel being very problematic for, uh, for Jewish thinkers to appropriate, there's one crucial thing, a couple of crucial things that, uh, that I think are, are sometimes not appreciated. And, and one is that, um, whereas Kant thought of the the subject, right, the moral autonomous subject was the uh, centerpiece for his thinking, um, Hegel really is 
critiqued um, subjectivism in, in many different kinds of forms and was really a theoretician of collective uh, ethical communities. And in that sense, Jews, um, he opens up a space to think about Jews as a community, that not everyone has to be simply an individual uh, subject, a universal kind of um, generic uh, subject, uh, like the, the Kantian rational uh, moral subject. And so that that gave the these Jewish thinkers a way to think of what would the Jewish community look like as a community and how could it fit into an ethical community of the state. So that was one important um, thing. And then the other important thing that I think Hegel uh, sort of offered to these thinkers was, yes, he does say that that everything has to have a kind of rational um, explanation that it has that the state has to be uh, a rational entity. Um, and that that there are certain things that do get superseded. But if you can sort of find a rational core to Judaism, which sort of, if you want, justifies its continuing existence, then it can have a place in, in Hegel's state. And they thought very much that they could, that they could look at Jewish history um, and and find a kind of rational core and and uh, harmonize it with the sort of requirements of uh, of of the Hegelian conception of the state. So there are, uh, and also Hegel was was within the context of 1820s Germany uh, for all of the, the ways that he is absolutely sort of problematic um, for uh, you know for for Jewish studies or for Jewish identity. I guess um, he was really a progressive. I mean, he spoke out against anti-Semitism and he he spoke out against sort of uh, ethnic or folkish uh, conceptions of the of the of the polity, and he. Um, said explicitly that Jews uh, should be admitted to civil service and, and things like that. So he was in, in many ways, um, certainly not a perfect ally, but definitely a kind of an ally. Um, so those are some of the ways that I, I think I'm sort of upending some of the uh, uh, standard narratives of, of the way that Kant and Hegel have re-echoed through, uh, through, uh, German, through Jewish philosophy. Consider them upended. Uh, I do want to come back to Marx, um, who we touched on, and, and you, you mentioned uh, that chapter, which chapter four is a slightly different um, in sort of the structure, the schema, um, although I do want to be conscious of the time. Um, tell us what, what's going on with Marx and, and Bauer. What, what do we need to know? Okay, well, I'll try to do this uh, briefly, as you uh, sort of indicated, the time is running Short. So, um, Bauer, this, this is, there's a famous, infamous essay by Marx, uh, called On the Jewish Question. And it is, uh, formally a review of, uh, some essays by Bruno Bauer. Um, and, uh, Bruno Bauer, you know, wrote an essay, um, against admitting, uh, giving, uh, civil rights to Jews, uh, to giving them the same sort of citizenship rights, uh, in Germany as, as non-Jews, uh, enjoyed. And uh, and this was really going against the standard liberal uh, consensus that Jews should be admitted uh, to uh, citizenship. And and so Marx um, takes this opportunity to uh, write against Bauer. But it's it's somewhat a, 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 a kind of engagement with Bauer. But it's really, I think, an opportunity for Marx to say some things that he's been working through. And uh, the reason why this is in a sort of infamous uh, piece is that. Marx, in the second half of his essay, resorts to some very ugly uh, anti-Jewish rhetoric, uh, calling Jews, you know, bodily and egoistic and and venal, um, and it's really quite uh, quite striking um, how how uh, just 
kind of dripping with, with anti-Jewish uh, sentiment, uh, this, this piece suddenly becomes. And so that's been kind of a, a conundrum. Uh, it's a very important, uh, pivotal piece for Marx in, in his path towards getting to historical materialism. Um, and so it's an important piece. It's in every major, you know, anthology of early Marx, uh, of the early Marx's writings. And it's been sort of notorious within Jewish studies as how do we interpret this? And different interpretations have been that Marx is uh, writing out of Jewish self-hatred or um, uh, usually that. Um, and uh, that's that's been uh, a kind of consistent sort of essay that people have gone back to and tried to, to understand from various points of view. And I try to understand it differently. So I try to not understand it from a psychological point of view. Why is Marx, uh, you know, saying such nasty things about Jews, but what is this, this, uh, what is this decision to say such nasty things about Jews doing in his uh, theoretical development? So I try to talk about what is the sort of function of, of the deployment of this anti-Jewish, uh, rhetoric, uh, in Marx's development. And the very short version of that is that, uh, Marx had at that point come to critique politics, um, which had before kind of been his go-to solution to uh, uh, how do you get something done? How do you accomplish something? How do you get out of this mere philosophical abstraction um, that a lot of us, he saw his contemporaries sort of stuck in and how do you really change something in the world? Well, for a long time, he thought the politics was the way. And at this point he's come to sort of move beyond liberal politics and he's moving to radicalization and towards socialism and communism and revolution, right? Not, not politics, but uh, as, as we sort of common political activity, but rather social revolution. And so politics has become this empty category. And he's saying that the political state is just another version of religion. Uh, it's just a political heaven. You have you have rights, but they don't mean anything. And so we need something uh, that is an alternative to this empty, evacuated category of the political. And that has to be the social. And yet he doesn't have an he doesn't yet have his his real theory of production and what we now sort of associate with with Marxism, that's not in place yet. And so really what he has is a rhetorical gambit to to kind of give himself the uh, the sense and the illusion of talking about talking from a place that's very real uh, as opposed to abstract and ethereal. And the way that he can sort of gain purchase on this reality or this uh, uh, the pseudo reality, if you want, is to make uh, the figure of the real Jew, which is the, his phrase, the real Jew, as opposed to the theological Jew or the Jew of belief, but the real social embodied Jew, uh, the more that he abuses that figure, the more leverage he gets from that figure that he can say that he's speaking from a place of reality. So I, I call it a kind of uh, an, an abusive embrace of, of, of the figure of the, of the Jew, that it's, it's a term of abuse, but as much as the more he abuses that figure, uh, the more obscene he makes that figure. Uh, the more he kind of gains from that figure, he can embrace that figure and, and use it as a platform from which to be speaking uh, from from some kind of solid social reality rather than an ethereal political uh, set of illusions. I think you captured that very briefly and succinctly. Thank you. Uh, Sven Eric, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. The book is Jewish Philosophical Politics in Germany, 1789 to 1848, published in 2014 by Brandeis University Press. The author Sven Eric Rose. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.